This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, September 23rd. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Doug Blair. On today's episode of the Daily Signal podcast, we speak with John Kay, a senior editor at Quillette and editor of the new book, Panics and Persecutions, 20 Quillette Tales of Excommunication in the Digital Age. He joins the show to talk about cancel culture and share some of the strangest stories of social justice run amok. And don't forget, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to today's top news. Was Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas warned about the coming flood of Haitian migrants to the southern border? and yet do nothing? That is the question Texas Republican Representative Michael McCall asked Mayorkas during a Homeland Security hearing on Wednesday. As early as June, McCall says there were reports of a coming influx of migrants to the southern border, per the Hill. Did you have any warning signs? You know, when the sector chief is being warned about this, when the Panama foreign minister is warning on June the 3rd, and, uh, you know, here we are in September, you know, months later. Did you see this coming? Well, so we, uh, we watched the, um, uh, the uh, flow of individuals who are seeking to migrate irregularly um, through Mexico from the Northern Triangle countries and further south. We do indeed track it. Um, and uh, nevertheless, a Congressman, as I previously articulated, um, the speed with which this materialized is unprecedented. More than 14,000 Haitian migrants arrived at the southern border last week, and thousands more are expected to be on their way. The Department of Homeland Security has increased the pace of deportation flights, taking migrants back to Haiti. After a Wednesday phone call between French President Emmanuel Macron and American President Joe Biden, Recalled French ambassador to the United States, Philippe Etienne, will be returning to Washington next week. A White House statement regarding the call read, The two leaders agreed that the situation would have benefited from open consultations among allies on matters of strategic interest to France and our European partners. President Biden conveyed his ongoing commitment in that regard. Etienne was recalled after Australia dropped out of a contract with France to purchase submarines for $66 billion last week. Australia instead chose to work with the United States and the United Kingdom in response to growing Chinese aggression in the Indo-Pacific region in a new trilateral security agreement called AUKUS. Angry French officials responded to the news by criticizing President Biden, along with Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison, and recalling their ambassadors to both countries. The French were informed about the new agreement between the AUKUS countries mere hours before it was announced. The submarines offered by America and the U.K. will be nuclear-powered, but not nuclear-armed. Former President Donald Trump has filed a lawsuit against the New York Times and his niece over leaked tax documents. Trump is also suing three New York Times reporters. Trump claims the Times coerced his niece into illegally providing the paper with his tax documents. In a statement to the Daily Beast about the lawsuit, Trump said... More to come, including on other people and fake news media. The former president's niece, Mary Trump, called her uncle a loser in a statement and added he is going to throw anything against the wall he can, 
It's desperation. The walls are closing in, and he is throwing anything against the wall that will stick. A spokesperson for the Times told the Daily Beast, This lawsuit is an attempt to silence independent news organizations, and we plan to vigorously defend against it. Now stay tuned for my conversation with John Kay as we talk about his new book and some of the craziest examples of cancel culture in the digital age. Conservative women, conservative feminists, it's true, we do exist. I'm Virginia Allen, and every Thursday morning on Problematic Women, Lauren Evans and I sort through the news to bring you stories and interviews that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. That is, women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. We talk about everything from pop culture to policy and politics. Search for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. Our guest today is John Kay, a senior editor at Quillette, as well as editor of the new book, Panics and Persecutions, 20 Quillette Tales of Excommunication in the Digital Age. John, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for your interest. Yeah. So first, I'd like to know a little bit more about you and the uh, publication that you work for. So for some of our listeners who maybe aren't aware of Quillette, uh, what is it? How did you get involved with the publication? And then what's your journalistic background? My journalistic background is I worked at a conservative newspaper in Canada, which was a little bit too conservative for me. Then I went to a very progressive magazine here in Canada, uh, and that was way, way too progressive for me. And so I was sort of journalistically homeless, and this is 2017, uh, which was just two years after Quillette was created. And I think like a lot of people who who write for Quillette, um, I... I was at a point that I didn't think my future was in journalism or in writing because I saw a lot of tribalization. I saw progressives becoming like really cultish. And on the conservative side, I wasn't, you know, I didn't consider myself a Trump fan. And I saw, even in Canada, you saw some conservative publications going in in that direction. And Quillette was this thing that just, wow, that's something that hits me right where I'm at politically. It's a classic liberalism. And, uh, against what I would call political cultism on either side. And uh, I got swept up in it. I submitted something, and then next thing you know, I was an editor, and now I'm doing their podcast. It's, uh, uh, it's been great. That's awesome. So moving on from you a little bit more, let's talk about the book. So Panics and Persecutions, 20 Quillette Tales of Excommunication in the Digital Age, quite an evocative title. And from the back of the book, we kind of get an impact of, or we get an idea of what we're talking about. So here's, here's what's on the dust jacket. In an age when telling the wrong joke or using the wrong pronoun can cost you your career, Quillette Magazine has provided a forum for thinkers of all political stripes to push back against the forces of intellectual conformity. So my question for you is, where did this idea for the book come from and why write it now? So we published, I mean, we've published thousands of articles, but... Um, some of our most widely read articles were first-person accounts, people describing what it had been like for them, say, in the world of theater or the world of literature, or um, they were at some uh, NGO and they witnessed, I mean, we now call it cancel culture. A lot of these stories were, were written before that term was popularized. Uh, and those often became some of our, our 
or most viral articles because it showed people inside the sausage factory. Um, it showed people exactly how tormenting this can be for people in these institutions or these subcultures if they don't toe the party line. And I got to say, things have changed radically just, just in the time that Quillette has been around. I mean, it's now fairly common. Uh, Newsweek, you know, you can't imagine a more mainstream publication. Newsweek just, I think it was yesterday, published uh, a piece by some by a woman who was a um, municipal politician in the New York City area talking about how she had censored herself about supporting J.K. Rowling, J.K. Rowling's views in regard to gender. Uh, that piece appearing in Newsweek, even like a year ago or certainly two years ago, like would have been really controversial. And so now you have a fair number of outlets who are publishing these kind of um, cris de coeur when it comes to people's experience with uh, cancel culture. Quillette was, you know, we were we were a little earlier to that game, and we were doing it uh, as early as you know the mid two thousand and tens. Is what we became known for, uh, and a lot of those stories we consider them fairly foundational for the Quillette identity, and certainly for the the people who wrote these things. It kind of defined who they were as writers. We collected them uh, between two covers in this book. Excellent. So with that in mind, would you be able to maybe share one or two of the stories from your book that you find to be particularly indicative of this issue of cancel culture? So um, one thing that really strikes you about what we call cancel culture is just how obscure and and often subcultural these these milieus are where it happens. And one of the reasons I love being an editor for these stories is you don't just learn about the political and cultural war aspects. You, you learn about the social dynamics. And I'm going to pick something that's like when I describe this article to people who haven't read it, they, they can't they think I'm joking. Um, it's it's called Knitting's Knitting. That's what you do. You know what your grandmother did. Knitting's in, Infinity War on Instagram. And it's, uh, it's, it's a lengthy, actually, we, wrote, we published it originally in three sections because it was so long. And it was about how the knitting community uh, in its online um, form fell into this complete social panic over issues of anti-racism. It started with the most ludicrous, I mean, I'm, it started with someone talking about how they were excited about their trip to India uh, and they used the wrong word or something. Um, and it became this crazy thing, which spilled over into real life. Like, people were confronting each other at knitting meetups uh, in, in, in Britain. And it's, it's sound, I mean, it's, it's tragicomic. Like, it's, it's, it's hilarious because these are people who knit. But it's also tragic in the sense that a lot of these people, like, this is their life. And their community, their social community is other people who knit on these Instagram groups and other social media. And they're getting thrown out. Like, they're, you know... Social media communities, they, their whole identity took them like years, sometimes decades to form these relationships. And because they used the wrong word, they were going, getting thrown out. That to me was fascinating because it shows there is no limit to how tiny and subcultural a world can be that it cannot be consumed with like completely irrelevant considerations of skin color and gender and stuff like that. It's, 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 as I said, it's both funny. Right. And I, I think we've heard a lot of these different types of stories where some movement or another gets, you know, eaten up by a purity spiral where we start to, you know, well, you're yeah. not, uh, you're not for the cause enough. And then all of a sudden it's like, nobody can do anything anymore without giving the side eye to somebody else. So, 
Yeah. Given that we kind of acknowledge that there are problems, I want to hear what your thoughts on like what are the specific concerns about what cancel culture can bring? Why why should we be concerned about cancel culture? Well, it's it's interesting you say that because on on Quillette's on our own podcast, we just published it today actually. Uh, we spoke with um, uh, Peter Bogosian, uh, who who just quit Portland State University. Um, he was a uh, philosophy professor there. And we talked about this very question. And he talked about how one of the reasons no one took cancel culture seriously is a lot of these stories, well, knitting is, is particularly obscure, but it was like gender studies, cultural studies, uh, post-colonial studies. This is the kind of stuff that even people in that field will recognize, like it's are somewhat disconnected from the everyday world of like building bridges and, um, you know, managing healthcare and stuff like that. But what, what, what he's noted, and I've noted it too, certainly here in Canada, um, is that it's starting to get into engineering and physics and, and certainly the medical schools here in Canada. Uh, I just spoke to a radiologist uh, who said that something like 30% of his course load consists of some kind of anti-racism training. I mean, these are, this guy is, you know, five years from now, he's going to be reading x-rays and other images to see if like I have cancer and his head's going to be full of all sorts of nonsense by like Ibrahim Kendi instead of actual science that helps advance society. So now that this stuff is getting into the military, uh, as I said, the hard sciences, health sciences, this is really important. I mean, you're starting to see the threat. We're going to roll back things like our commitment to to empiricism and science and rationality. Uh, and in place of that, it's just I mean, you see it already. It's sort of a bunch of slogans uh, and mantras dealing with matters of identity. So a lot of the stories here are sort of the canary in the gold mine because, you know, knitting, who cares, right? Literature, uh, theater, some of these are obscure. But this, several years after a lot of these essays were originally written, you see it going into fields that really, really matter in terms of the everyday functioning of our society. It sounds like there's a very distinct impact on the old sort of guard thinking, oh, it's just going to be on the college campuses, they'll grow out of it, and then, you know, in reality... Well, this is why, you know, my boss, uh, Claire Lehman, who founded Quillette, the reason she focuses a lot, and we focus our journalism on, on um, campus trends... Uh, what's happening in the academy is because what what's being taught today ends up uh, being in boardrooms tomorrow and in in politics and so you see it here in Canada. I mean, we have we're in the middle of a federal election campaign, and I'm getting campaign materials from people listing their pronouns. And I look at you know some especially the left leaning parties like some of their pl- campaign platforms. It's just a bunch of campus gibberish, with very little that actually touches on stuff that influences regular Canadians and how they get services and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, United States maybe is a little bit further behind on that trend because there's, you know, more of an active conservative presence there. Uh, but certainly when it comes to elite college educated demographics, uh, art, activism, journalism, uh, sort of the commanding heights of intellectual culture, uh, what, what happens on campuses, no matter how obscure and jargony it sounds, it's, it's going to affect the lives of ordinary people. And, uh, and that's why one of the reasons we keep a close eye on campus trends. So moving on from that topic, I want to discuss sort of the aftermath of a cancellation. 
the question being, is there any way to recover once someone has been canceled? I feel like I'll see stories basically every day about this guy or that guy that got canceled for something, but I don't really ever see a follow-up about, and now they're doing X, or now they're completely unemployable. So can you ever get back to society once you've been canceled? Uh, so the answer is yes, if you can make a ton of money for people. Like Louis, Louis C.K. is an example of a comedian who was, as people listening to this know, uh, was canceled. And by the way, like, he wasn't canceled for, you know, saying the wrong adjective. I mean, he was canceled for some genuinely concerning uh, sexual behavior. Um, and, you know, if he were a lesser-known figure, his career would, would have been over. But because he can command ticket prices of 100 or $200 at a comedy club, and I know this because he came to Toronto, I think it was last, no, two years ago, and... Uh, uh, much to the consternation of uh, cancel culture aficionados, uh, it was you know did a bunch of sold out shows. He's hard to cancel because he makes so much money for everybody. I, J.K. Rowling, you know, one of perhaps the most successful living author in the world right now. Uh, some of her contemporaries in UK at publishers they tried to cancel. They uh, you know there were some young employees who said, well, we don't want to work at a publisher or you know um, a talent agency that has anything to do with J.K. Rowling. And uh, the people in charge said, well, that's too bad because, you know, she pays your salary and my salary and there's absolutely no way we're going to fire her. And that was it. Um, so if you're famous, yes, you can survive cancellation. A lot of the stories we have in this book are of much more obscure figures. And often they are in government subsidized fields, like here in Canada, it's sort of literature and stuff. And and they don't, even when they were successful, they never made a lot of money for any. I mean, what poet makes money for people, right? The reason they're successful is because they have the acclaim of their colleagues or, you know, they're an assistant professor at a good university. And uh, maybe there's some grant giving foundation that, that pays them a stipend or something like that. And as soon as those people get enmeshed in this kind of controversy, that's it. They, 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 they are not like J.K. Rowling in that they're making money for people. Just the opposite. In many cases, they're, uh, you know, they've been living off other people's generosity. And once they get canceled, that's it. Because these subcultures um, have a lot of gatekeepers. They're tiny. Often, you know, to get a job in a field where you've been canceled, forget it. There's like 17 people who control the field and they all hate you. Um, and those people have to reinvent themselves. And we have people in the book who basically what they've done is they've stayed in the field, but in a, in a different faction of it. Um, maybe they haven't become conservative, but they have certainly picked, uh, shall we say, like a different tribe. Because the people who were in the other tribe who, who canceled them will never, ever forgive them. Uh, that, that never really happens unless you really, really prostrate yourself. Uh, once you've been canceled... And again, you're not a huge moneymaker. Uh, that's kind of it. People don't like to admit they were wrong about canceling you in the first place. Right. So one of the things that I found very interesting that happened recently up in Canada, where you're based, uh, there's a controversy surrounding book burning that recently came to light. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was quite a story. I, I highly encourage our readers to look into this. But um, there was this story about uh, some pretty radical leftists that took 
4,700 individual books, burnt them in a, quote, flame purification event, and then used the ashes to fertilize a tree in a symbolic act of reconciliation. And now these books were things like like uh, Tintin and Asterix and these very, like, old uh, comics that sort of portrayed Native Americans maybe uh, not in a 2021 acceptable light. So... My question then would be, are book burnings and these sort of other authoritarian-style removals of undesirable stuff the inevitable endpoint of this censorious left that we've kind of cultivated through cancel culture? So I think the, the book burning actually went too far, even for leftists. Uh, I think they apologized for it, and I think even the progressive media had to admit this was a terrible idea. One thing that was amazing about this story was that this was done ostensibly on the initiative of uh, indigenous activists working with school board officials. And shortly after the scandal of this book burning, because as I said, this was even for Progressive Canada, burning a bunch of books in this, I mean, just they should have focus grouped this term like purification ceremonies. I mean, it was just like absolutely out of a dystopian science fiction novel, this terminology they used. Um, That after this was done, it, it then emerged that one of the women who presented herself as an indigenous leader, a leader of uh, actually an indigenous commission for the ruling Liberal Party of Canada, it turns out she's not actually indigenous. She's just, uh, she sells indigenous earrings at $200 a pop at museums, uh, and she's on this, heads up, this indigenous liberal commission, and she's uh, gung-ho for book burnings uh, to promote reconciliation for the historical crimes perpetrated against Indigenous people. But she herself ha- doesn't have a drop of Indigenous blood going back to the 18th century, according to an investigation by Radio Canada, which is the, the French branch of our CBC. And it couldn't have been a more symbolically fitting story because a lot of the people leading these in most cases, it's not actual book burnings. They're, they're smart enough not to actually do that. But, you know, purging libraries and demanding that this or that book not be sold and stuff like that. A lot of them have extremely tenuous connections. And in this case, a non-existent connection uh, to the communities they purport to be advancing. Um, and often it is people like this. It's, it's privileged people who are either white or, uh, if I can borrow the phrase from social justice uh, enthusiasts, uh, white adjacent, um, who are who are essentially indulging in uh, upper middle class academic fixations in regard to identity, in in what they present as an effort to promote social justice. But it's not. It's just. I mean, it's their own sort of virtue signaling stunts, which doesn't really benefit anybody. I mean, just burning a bunch of books isn't. If anything, it just puts social justice in a bad odor. It doesn't help anybody. One would hope that, you know, somebody looking at an actual book burning in the year 2021 would probably have to question whether or not they it's were on the right side of history. It's a crazy story. I mean, the fact that they actually... And then <laughs> you said for fertilizer. But it actually does speak to the climate here in Canada. So 2017 was Canada's 150th birthday. Uh, but rather than being a period of celebration, it, it set off a lot of hand-wringing among the elites about what a... Uh, a racist place Canada was, and uh, the word genocide started being thrown around uh, with people with a serious face calling Canada an ongoing, not just in the, an ongoing genocide state, as if we were Rwanda in 1994 or, uh, or the Nazis back in the 1940s. This is the kind of language that's been thrown around, and it's created a kind of social panic uh, among a certain kind of policymaker 
to the extent that actually apparently you can now walk into a you know a room full of school board officials and say hey let's burn a bunch of books and then fertilize trees with the ashes and there is no one in the room who says that's like the creepiest idea i've ever heard because probably people in the room did object to that but in the current environment it's you're not allowed to say that um and uh Unfortunately, you know, we have to wait for episodes like this just to see how crazy things have gotten. Uh, but this, you know, this isn't America's future. We're just, we're Canada, <laughs> we're, we're a few years ahead of you in terms of the social panic. And, and, but, and uh, the fact that you're saying that it's in our future, that kind of begs the question then, how do we get rid of this kind of stuff from society? How do we rid society of cancel culture? Well, I mean, this, I think there's two things. One is every generation throws off the pieties of, of the one before it. And you are, I mean, I already see this with... Um, you know, my kids and, and kids who are like teenagers now, they are sort of starting to roll their eyes at a lot of the stuff that's being shoveled at them from their like their super woke, you know, 25 and 30 year old teachers um, whose, you know, <laughs> whose social media pages are just like a riot of rainbows and hashtags and uh, black squares and green squares and purple squares and just every imaginable color of square. And teenagers are really good at sniffing out hypocrisy and uh, cynical performance politics. It's, it's like one of their great skills. Um, it's exasperating as a parent when you're trying to be earnest and teach them things, but uh, it comes in handy when stuff like this come around. So I think this is cyclical and you're going to see teenagers uh, pushing back in it. But it's also like here in Canada, some of the biggest and most effective critics against uh, progressive cultism are are people of color, um, are are people are you know lesbians, uh, gay men, Jews like me, uh, Muslims, who who are basically saying not in my name. Like if if you want to rend your garments because uh, you're uh, a wasp who who came here, you know your ancestors came here hundreds of years ago, and you, you feel paralyzed by guilt and shame about the things they did, the historical crimes they committed, which in some cases are very real and horrific things, that's fine. But please do not inflict that emotional dysfunction you are suffering on people who whose relatives came here relatively recently and who, who don't have your privilege. And, you know, they have different races and religions and sexual orientations. And um, But a lot of us are just united by the fact that not only do we oppose a lot of this censorship and social panic, we doubly oppose the fact that it's being done in our name. Like it's being done, you know, to, to help people like me. I happen to be Jewish. Or, but, you know, you see gay men and women who, who resent the fact that the most absurd kind of gender theory nonsense is being shoveled at the public in their name. You know, um, they, they said that this, this, this isn't how I live my life. These aren't... Things I believe in. This is this is stuff that a certain clique of people uh, made up and want to promote, but they shouldn't do it pretending that the rank and file of my community actually believe this stuff. And you're starting to see black black people do this, and indigenous people do this, and they they have a lot more moral authority to make to say stuff like this than than people like me certainly. Um, and so and good on them. I'm glad they're doing it. Right now, I think it's it is a very positive step when you see these sort of communities that are being. Uh, told that, you know, this is what's good for you or this is, you know, to help you. And they're saying, well, I don't want it. Please stop. You know, that's a very positive. So, John, we are running a little bit low on time, but I wanted to give you the last word here. If our listeners want to learn more about the work you and Quillette are doing, where should they go? Uh, well, just go to Quillette.com. 
uh, and <laughs> I always tell people it's it's Gillette, but with a Q U instead of a G. Uh, that helps with spelling and pronunciation. Uh, subscribe to our podcast, uh, you know, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you listen to podcasts, um, and surf some of our content. You could also follow us at Quillette on Twitter and other social media. Uh, and my boss, uh, Claire Lehman, is, is a great follow on Twitter. She's very funny and um, incisive. Uh, I'm, I, I'm the second banana. Uh, but I'm at, at John K, J-O-N-K-A-Y. Um, and uh, Jamie Palmer is my colleague, and Colin, uh, Colin Wright, who's also a great follow. Uh, there's, there's really four of us who, who kind of uh, man the ship on a daily basis. Um, so we're a small outfit, uh, but uh, I like to think we punch above our weight. So thanks for paying attention to our humble little book. Of course. Well, thank you for coming on to the show. So that was John Kay, a senior editor at Quillette, as well as editor of the new book, Panics and Persecutions, 20 Quillette Tales of Excommunications in the Digital Age. John. Thank you so much again for joining us. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks so much again for listening, and we'll see you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Virginia Allen and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.